This is Shack Talk, presented by Eskimo Ice Fishing Gear and hosted by Kyle Agri and Anthony Kleinwachter. Turn up your speakers, grab your gear, and hit the ice with us as we talk ice fishing. Come on in and grab a bucket. We are talking ice fishing. Kyle Agri and Anthony Kleinwachter, we are your hosts, and this is Shack Talk Ice Fishing Podcast. Anthony, it is good uh, to, to be here again. And the last time we sat down and talked on Shack Talk, we were anxiously anticipating some colder weather coming around. And, and guess what? Our wish came true. We got a pretty good cold snap here, and I think it's done a lot, uh, a great deal to improve ice conditions, at least in, in North Dakota, uh, maybe even Northeast South Dakota and, and into Central Minnesota as well. Is that what you're seeing when you've been out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the cold is here. Uh, we avoided any major snow, so I think that really helped too. It's going to drive this cold and and make that ice good ice. You know, we're not going to have to deal with flooding and slush and all of that stuff. So I'm excited. I'm trying to thaw out a little bit because it's been brutal, um, but I'm anticipating some warmer temps on the, in the forecast to be able to get out and get after it now with with some much better improved ice conditions. Yeah, and as we always say, no ice is 100% uh, secure and safe. We always want to check our own ice. We always want to take the necessary precautions, but it sure does feel good knowing we've had that cold snap. And, and it, yes, we had to make up a little ground. It got really cold, but that's it is what it is. I'm glad to see it coming. It looks like we're going to have a little reprieve to some more moderate temperatures, not thawing temperatures, but moderation of, of the temps here in Minnesota and in Eastern Dakotas, which is great. I kind of feel like now it's, it's game on. Let's go ice fishing. Let's, uh, let's kind of put some of that a uh, little hesitation we've had early on behind us and, and enjoy the season that's ahead of us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to getting out. I know, Probably a lot of people have been just anxiously waiting. I know guys haven't been able to get out in their, you know, wheelhouses and ice shacks. A lot of people have to wait until they can, you know, drive a vehicle out or, or be able to pull those out. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people hitting the ice now that we're getting to that safe, drivable ice conditions. Um, so I'm sure lakes are going to be hopping and it's going to be busy out there, but hopefully everybody's finding some fish. Finding some fish and enjoying themselves on the ice. That's what it's about. And, you know, you talk about anticipation, Anthony, and, and anticipating this ice season. Our guest for this episode of Shack Talk is somebody we've been anticipating having on the podcast. Uh, is a gentleman we, we get to interact with a lot during ice show season early on, uh, sometimes before there's even ice around. And one of these fellas that just is interesting to listen to. And I, I just always appreciate the knowledge that, that he brings to our conversation. We have Chuck Johnson from Brainerd, Minnesota. Chuck is a hydrologist with the state of Minnesota. He has a fisheries management background. And more importantly... He is an avid, enthusiastic ice angler, especially when it comes to chasing those big gills, which a lot of us love to do. Chuck, welcome to uh, Shack Talk. Uh, thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Anthony, for having me. I'm excited to uh, have a little conversation about ice fishing now that it's actually cold outside. Kyle and I are always selfishly looking for guests that we can learn a little something from. So <laughs> not to put you on the spot, but I'm sure we'll both take away a few things from this conversation. I hope so, but I wouldn't guarantee it, guys. <laughs> Chuck, tell us a little bit about yourself, just to, to get a, a familiarity level with our listeners, a little bit about yourself. I know I gave you some just uh, some very brief introductory points there, but just tell us about the kind of fishing you like to do, where, you know, maybe a little background, that kind of thing. Uh, sure. 
Um, I'll first talk a little bit about my professional life. So for 30, 34 years now, I've been a hydrologist, which um, I study rivers mainly. And prior to to that stint, I spent about eight or nine years as a, a stream restoration hydrologist where I was doing survey work, looking at habitat issues and trying to mitigate habitat and streams. So it, it doesn't relate really closely to ice fishing, obviously. But what's kind of cool about this line of work is I'm not on lakes all the time. So I'm not bored with lakes. And that's what drives the passion for lake fishing. So my, my fishing background is I've been fishing for well over 50 years now, um, primarily chasing around bluegills. And uh, of course, we like to chase big crappies as well, but bluegills are really the, the passion that, that drives the, uh, the interest and, uh, you know, that keeps, keeps us going all the time. We fish bluegills year-round, you know, well, about the only time of year we do not fish bluegills is when they're on their beds. We have, we've kind of came to the conclusion that seeing how the males are the, the nest garters and, you know, the, the fish that are being plucked off the beds are the males, we probably should be nice and leave them alone. And uh, we might go if we're exploring a brand new lake catch a couple on a bed just to see what size structure, but that's to set up for July, August, September, October, and into the winter to see if we can catch those really big fish. Um, yeah, the other the other type of fishing I like to do quite a bit is I, I'm an avid pike guy as well. Um, in the last, well, since COVID, me and my son have caught, I think we're at nine pike now over 40 inches. And we have two that are 42 and a half, and then the other seven are in that 40 to 41 inch range. So it's been a lot of fun. So catching some, some really good fish the last number of years and fish that I'd never fished before. That, you know, it's, it's a whole new experience for me. So it's almost starting to, uh, it's almost like being a kid, right? You're learning new tricks and, and you're learning new, uh, new adventures and, and I get to share it with my 20 year old son, which makes it even better. That's, so, that's yeah. pretty awesome. That, I mean, really that's, you, you think a lot of us are in that scenario, whether, whether our listeners might be that 20 year old son, or it might be someone of, of our age, that's just thrilled as can be to go fishing with our 20 year old son or, or however they might be, however old they might be that those, those family times are, are special times, no matter what time of the year, if you're, if you're spending it on the water and that the pike thing is super cool and I don't want to get steered in a different direction. I think that's a super cool thing. I, I want to pick your brain on that too, but <laughs> the, the bluegills, you mentioned uh, fishing them on their beds. And I know a lot of our listeners are going to know, okay, I know exactly when bluegills are on their beds. That makes sense. But for some of us who may not be as familiar of the details of that life cycle, what is that period of time when they're, when they're guarding their nest? What uh, typically during the calendar year? Oh, typically in, in central or northern Minnesota, you're looking at maybe Memorial Day until the third week in June, somewhere in that, that time frame, that window. And um, you, you always have to remember from a fish biology standpoint, the largest fish are trying to do a fair amount of the reproduction. So when you're, when you're looking at panfish, in particular crappies or bluegills, 
or largemouth bass, as far as that goes, the, the males guard the nest. So the females come in, drop eggs, males guard the nest, actually hatch the fry and protect the fry until they get to a state where they can be on their own. And if, if we are harassing those fish, um, that's one thing. Um, but if we are keeping those fish to take home and eat, that's a, that's a whole different story. That means that gene pool um, of say, let's just it, use an example. You have a lake that's filled with nine and a half inch bluegills and 10% um, of the population is nine and a half inch males um, of which 99% of that population is probably sitting on beds at one point during that, that spawning cycle. And if you take 50% of those fish out of that lake, you've just lost the ability to um, propagate fish that have the genetic strain that can get to that size again. And what happens is, and we see it all the time in central Minnesota, when the really large fish are gone, we tend to then have eight inch fish spawn and seven inch fish then six inch fish. And once we get to that, you know, a six, seven inch range, the ability to grow large bluegills really seems like it, it gets diminished quite greatly. Not saying that it can happen because you can still get year classes that maybe don't get fish very heavy. And for some reason they've, they've been in the lake long enough to get to the size that we would like them to. But the growth rate potential drops dramatically when you have smaller male fish um, doing the reproductive work. So, yeah, so it's, it's a fish that we need to think about and we just need to be cognizant of it. Not saying that we can't go out and keep a male fish. That, you know, that's fine. Um, I do it all the time. I, I like to eat fish, so I try to eat fish a couple times a month. But I don't go and, you know, catch 100 anymore in a, in a short period of time and, you know, give them to eight neighbors and, you, you know what I mean. You know, those days from 40 years ago are gone. Um, we just, the mentality, it can't, it can't continue on. So uh, with that being, being said, you know, the, the funnest time to catch these fish is really early ice and late ice. Um, but the trick that most guys forget about is we can find these fish all winter long. We just need to look for them. And the way I look for them is completely non-traditional from most people. Um, we try to fish bluegills in active cabbage. We find active cabbage first with, you know, by going in October and we map our cabbage beds on the lakes that we want to target in the winter. And we actually draw lines around the cabbage beds and I'll have 15, 20 lakes mapped in October or early November. And then I go back and I try to fish those lakes in the winter and I'm using cameras and I'm using, you know, some type of, of an electronic unit, either, uh, I'll mark them. I, I like an M5, but, you know, um, I've used the MX-7 quite a bit as well. And heck, I use an M1 a lot because really it, it works just as good as all of the other sonars. Um, so, 
but it's it's a fun way to fish it's a different way to fish instead of chasing basin fish and looking with um you know some type of forward facing sonar you know now you're actively cutting holes in maybe 8 to 14 feet of water 15 feet you're dropping a camera down you're searching 40 foot grid patterns or maybe even shorter and you're you're really looking for fish with a camera and when you see fish they swim to the camera that's the beauty of panfish they like cameras they're curious by nature they tend to you can see them off in a distance as just a little shadow and if you give it that extra 30 seconds odds are that school of panfish is going to swim over and look at you and then you can decide at that point are they worth fishing do I want to continue on? You know, what, what's my course of action? Um, we do it a lot in teams of three. And it, it's, you know, it's very similar to forward-facing teams. If we go and chase, um, like if we go to Mille Lacs and we're going to chase walleyes on the mud flats, we always bring our forward-facing, right? And it's a, it's a three-person team. One guy drills, one guy shoots forward-facing sonar, and the guy behind fishes. <laughs> <laughs> and then you take turns throughout the day, how you're doing that. And for us, pan fishing is the same way. One guy drills, one guy runs camera, one guy fishes. And then you just keep flipping back and forth on, you know, who's getting the turn of actually catching said fish rather than doing the work for the other guys. <laughs> All right, Chuck, I got to, I'm racking up questions here, you know, a mile long because You've said a lot, and I think there's some really interesting stuff there. I want to just back it up a second because you you mentioned the fact that you go out in, in October and early November and you look for the green cabbage stands. What is your experience? How do you know, is this just any green cabbage? How do you know there's enough green cabbage that even on heavy snow winters, you're going to still see that green weed that's present throughout the winter? Or does... I mean, sometimes do they die out and you don't, and they're just not any green weeds there anymore? Yeah, some lakes, they, they even die out if we don't have a lot of snowpack. Um, and the, the cabbage I'm looking for is a particular pond weed. It's, uh, most people would call it like pipe cabbage. It's the big, thick, it's, it's Potomagetan amplifolius is the Latin name for it. And it's the really wide, broad-leafed cabbage that has the cankle to it. And they grow in individual stocks. They usually don't grow super dense. They grow kind of sporadic. And they'll typically have um, either water weed mixed in with them. Um, I, I don't know the generic terms for most of these plants, Kyle, so you have to excuse me. It's uh, Elodia is, is the Latin name, and then um, Coontail. So that, that's the type of cabbage we're looking for. And we look for that cabbage um, in areas that are maybe, you know, soft transitional flats that break on a really sharp break line. And what you're gonna find is during the day, sometimes these, these large predatory panfish will be out off the break line, sitting, you know, out in the, in the open water zone, and then they're moving in to feed. 
in the evening times in the cabbage or they're moving in in the mornings. And, you know, so it's almost like chasing walleyes at, at certain, on certain lakes. And then other lakes we fish, there's a, a static population that never goes to the basin, that just always stays in, in cabbage or in some type of a green environment um, year round. So there, there's some reasons for it biologically and we don't need to get into that, but um, the, the whole key, the whole message is don't go, you know, don't forget about the weed beds because the weed beds can really be a very productive way to catch fish. You talk about these weed beds. Are you primarily fishing on the edges? Are you trying to find, you know, like I know a lot of people when you're talking about fishing contours on a lake, you're looking for inside turns or points. I know a lot of times fishing weed beds, you can look for those same types of characteristics. Uh, What are you typically trying to fish when you're fishing a weed bed? A lot of times I'm looking for a hole, a hole in the weed bed, you know, so it could be, um, I have a lake up here that's a great example of this. The weed, the actual weed flat is eight feet deep and it expands for about 300 yards in, in roughly a circle. And everybody all winter will fish on the, the periphery of it, the edge of it. And, you know, they'll catch some fish here and there. And I'll sneak in twice a year because I, I don't want to do it too often because I don't want everybody to figure out what's going on but I'll sneak in a couple times a year and I'll have pockets in the weeds that I'll map in the fall. And I know that there was, there was a pocket there in October, there's a pocket there now. And we'll go in and we'll hit those pockets and then we'll just keep jumping pocket to pocket, looking with cameras. And, you know, some days you go and the fish just aren't there. Um, but more times than not, you can find them and you, you just have a ton of fun. You know, you get to catch quite a few fish and, and all the fish are releasable if you want them to be, or you can keep, you know, whatever you want for supper. Um, so and when you say the fish are releasable, you're talking about they're releasable because you're taking them out of shallow water, right? You're not bringing yeah. them out of a, out of a depth where there's any issue with barotrauma. Yeah. Yeah. That is correct. So, yeah. Another yeah, question too, kind of just along, you know, the you're talking about keeping some or looking for some of the bigger ones. Is that something where you're, you know, trying to find bigger fish? Do those fish tend to be by themselves? Do you find them more mixed in with the smaller fish, or does that really depend on maybe the lake or the area you're fishing? It, it depends, but generally speaking, the bluegills are usually intermixed. You know, a lot of the lakes where. Um, where me and my my buddy that I've I've convinced who used to be a diehard walleye fisherman has now turned into a pan fisherman with me, um, which has been kind of fun. But uh, I've convinced him that you know if we go out and catch, see you go out and catch thirty bluegills a guy in an hour and a half, and maybe out of that those sixty fish that we caught, maybe ten of them are eight and three quarter to nine and a half. And then maybe 10 of them are seven and three quarter to eight. Those are the 10 fish that I'll, I'll encourage him if he wants to take some fish home, take home the eight inches, the seven and three quarters. And then the rest of them are small, you know, anywhere from four inches to seven inches. And, you know, so 
very seldom would I say we go out and just catch just big bluegills. It, you're always sorting, you're always catching um, a variety of sizes. You know, the trick is, can you, can you find enough really nice ones to put a smile on your face when you went home? And, you know, that, that's always the goal for me is, can I catch a couple fish that are nine inches or, you know, if I can catch two 10 inch fish in a day, I'm happy. And it doesn't matter where I go. If it's even my premier bluegill lakes that, you know, will remain unnamed until the day I'm, I'm in the ground and my son coughs up the spots. <laughs> um, you know, those, those lakes, if we catch two or three in a day that are legit tens, that's a really good day. Um, there just aren't that many left. It's not like when I was a kid. You know, when I was in my 20s, I could go and catch probably... I would say when I was in my early 20s, catching 30 fish that would have weighed 28 pounds was really easy to do. And, wow. we, could do, and we could do it on hundreds of lakes. And um, now, you know, 35 years later, it, that's not the case. So, so this is a resource that needs protection. Is, is that 10-inch mark kind of... In terms of trophy status, is that what you would consider that trophy mark, that 10 inch? That's what we've always considered. Um, you know, I think back and, and I think of all of the large bluegills I've caught in my life, I've never caught a 12. I've caught a couple that have been 11 and a half. And I've probably caught less than five that are over 11 in total. <laughs> and, you know, yep. I'm 58. So you think I've been chasing these things around seriously since I was 16. You know, the, the minute I got my driver's license and my dad said, you can use the 20-year-old truck to go fishing, my first question was, is there a boundary on where I can go? And he said, no, as long as you're going with your buddies and you don't get in any trouble. <laughs> so we used to drive from the cities up to Hackensack and Bemidji even back then. And we would stay at, at a buddy's cabin or, at, you know, somebody's grandma's house or whatever. And we'd go for weekends, you know, in the winter, we'd do this six, seven weekends of winter. And we would chase these things around, you know, jiffy, one-armed banded augers. I, I, I'm dating myself back far enough now where before Vexilar was a company, Cytex used to make the old flashers that Vexilar bought that technology. I still have one of the original Cytexes that got shipped into the country. <laughs> we took a puck transducer, and my dad welded me a stick that, you know, had a pivot on it. And we taped the truck the puck transducer to the bottom, and we were using this thing back in, you know, 1979, 1980 as a, as a fish locator. And um, all winter long, yeah, it's it's awesome. So it's kind of, it's it's just fun, you know, history, right? Right, whatever. Absolutely, um, it's fun. Uh, Absolutely, Chuck, this is great. As a great conversation, you, going back again to actually before we started recording, we were talking a little bit off air how this year's been different, right? And then Anthony kind of coined the phrase the extended early ice season that's gotten us into mid January. You had to, you added to that and said that, you know, you can really go back into last fall 
and say that last fall, we didn't get real fall fishing conditions until November. Just share with our listeners a little bit about kind of that theory and where this season has been different than a traditional season. Yeah. um, So water temps stayed relatively warm all fall. And I, you know, I'm sure it didn't happen on all lakes, but a lot of the lakes in, in central Minnesota anyways, are bigger lakes now, you know, they just, they retained heat for a much longer period of time than they normally do in the fall. So, you know, historically speaking, I don't walleye fish a lot, but I do like to walleye fish. And so my, my favorite time of year to walleye fish is the harvest moon. And I could probably go back, you know, the last 25 years and tell you on the harvest moon, I have, you know, caught anywhere from five to 20 walleyes a night myself on that particular night. This year we went the three days before the harvest moon, boom, boom, boom. We went the harvest moon. We went the three nights after the harvest moon and we caught zero. And um, my buddy that I fish with, he, uh, he was teasing me. He said, well, you know, the water is, is still like 65 or 67 degrees on the harvest moon. He said, it's, we're, we're way too warm. And I said to him, I'm too old. I don't remember what's the water temp supposed to be. And he looked at me and he just laughed. He goes, you know, and I said, yeah, I know it should be in the mid fifties to the low fifties. And so that just gives you a perspective on how late everything was. So when the first really good classic fall walleye bite I had was opening day of deer season. And, you know, that was, that was the day where I finally got on enough fish where I felt like, oh, my fall fishing is actually now fall. And I know for a lot of people, you know, they were catching fish earlier, but they were probably still fishing summer patterns. And I like to fish fall patterns. I like it when they're coming up chasing tulipies and, you know, I, to me, it's, it's a whole different way to fish. Um, so then we, we started taking that into, um, you know, crappies all dump into the basin in September. That's just, it's, everybody knows that crappies dump in the basin in September and could be second week, could be last week, but it's sometime in September. Me and Steve were chasing around basin crappies in middle of September and we caught our first we really got onto our first good basin group the third week in October and we had fished three days a week all the entire fall trying to locate fish and finally we got into some and when we got into them here's the funniest part we found them we got into them and he looked at me after we caught three and he goes how many do you want to eat tonight? And I said, five. And bang, he caught two more. And he goes, okay, let's go largemouth fishing now. <laughs> now so you did. solved the question, right? <laughs> yeah, but that just, it, it kind of shows you, you know, how late everything was. So the first ice, um, which, you know, I, not going to lie to you guys, I, I ventured out on the ice probably first week in December on some of our smaller lakes and was tiptoeing my way around. Um, but yeah, there, there were still, you'd look through and it was really scary because it's like, oh, the weeds haven't changed a bit. 
you know, plant growth is, is maybe even better today than it was three weeks ago when, when water was still open. Um, you know, not all plants go away because of temperature. You know, a lot of plants go away because of sunlight and lack of snow, clear ice, plants continue to grow. Um, I just went uh, to a lake on Friday of last week and I like to spear too. It's a little known fact, you know, and I don't spear many fish, but I like to watch fish. So we had two really nice fish came in Friday that we decided not to take, but um, the weed growth was just as good as it was in October when we were up in that same lake and we were chasing around walleyes. So, you know, just fun little tidbits. I know you're talking a little bit about the clear ice and I experienced that when I got out the first time this year. Uh, What's your experience with how that might relate to the fish behavior? I know in, from my experience, you know, early ice, you maybe got cleats on and if it's really clear ice, then fish seem to be a lot more skittish. Is that something that you typically experience too? And how does that play when you're, you know, getting more snow? Yeah, I would, I would agree with you there, Anthony. Um, you know, liking to spear, you, you get to see some really interesting stuff when, you know, if you're going spearing when there's no snow and, um, me and my son ran up to uh, Winnie and we were spearing, I don't know, three weeks ago, maybe yeah, it might've even been close to a month ago now. And there was no snow ice as clear as can be. And any little noise out on the ice and you, you could watch the perch just skedaddle. And if you slid your foot on the ice in the shack when there was a pike in the hole, they just skedaddled. Um, you know, they feel the vibrations through that lateral line. They, um, I don't know if they can actually hear the noise because I, I don't know enough about them to know if there's hearing, but boy, they feel it. And, you know, with a lack of snow, um, everything is accentuated, right? So... I would say walk softly and uh, minimize movement when there isn't a lot of snow. And even when there is snow, they still, they, they know what's going on when it's shallow. So you got to be a little stealthy and, you know, you, you might have to wait things out for a while, you know, locate fish with a camera, drill a few holes in that general area. You blow the fish out by drilling holes, then just wait them out. And a lot of times an hour later, they just filter right back in there. They're in there for a reason. There's a good food supply and they don't go too far. So that's good stuff because you know, that goes back to your earlier kind of explanation of your tactic of the three person approach and, and moving and finding and exploring fish and in the way that you did, you are going to blow them out, right? I mean, that's, that's what you were just saying, but knowing that you can wait them out and, and find a spot that, that they were at, And then they'll they'll kind of come back in. I think that's the time when you, if it's a cold day, you set up your your outbreak shelter and you, you get it heated up inside and 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 sit tight and and just have that confidence that they're going to come back. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's really interesting, yeah. even with uh, with forward-facing sonar, being able to see that and how those fish react. Uh, we've even gone as far to, you know, set up a, a hub, hub shack or a flip shack and then, you know, maybe even going 100 yards or 100 feet one direction or the other, maybe just drill a few holes and maybe even try and scare a few back in to, to herd them around. It's definitely interesting being able to see and read how those fish react to noise and pressure on the ice. Yeah. I think I've seen it, like, you mentioned, Anthony, the, the forward-facing sonar. I believe it has a greater effect in that shallow water, and I believe that the bottom side of the ice does something to also reflect some of those signals back around. So you're getting an amplified effect on those fish, which really makes a case for, if, if you are using it, using it sparingly, but also really moving in the direction of that underwater camera as your tool of choice in that shallow water area where you can, number one, have the light to see that, see what's going on down there with the camera, but also to minimize the spooking. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the camera itself, I don't think really, I would say it, it maybe, it maybe is a hindrance if you're trying to tape walleyes hitting a jig. Um, trust me, I've been trying to get a walleye on camera for like 10 winters now and, like impossible i can't do it um but for panfish boy i could get all kinds of video underwater video of you know big bluegills eating jigs and they're not they're not affected by the camera at all neither are pike pike actually like the camera they'll come check it out and hammer it every once in a while (laughs) okay chuck let's let's talk a little bit about presentation and sort of your your favorite fish catching tactics, uh, are they always the same? Are they different for different conditions? Kind of give us your theory on that. You know, that, that's, a, that's a good question. When I was younger, Kyle and Anthony, I had a jig box that probably had, oh, I don't know, a couple of hundred different size jigs in it in different styles, right? Teardrops, um, ants, fairy jigs. You know, a lot of you guys probably don't even know what a fairy jig is. But a fairy jig is uh, it's a teardrop with two wings on the side. And as you're, as you're pulsating it, you know, jigging it, those wings are just dancing. And they used to be the hot ticket. But um, once they, they came out with tungsten, I, my jig box has got probably a half inch of dust on it, my old jig box. And the only thing now I use is, you know, a three millimeter, four millimeter, and five millimeter tungstens. And um, they're all the, I guess you would call them the teardrop style. And, you know, I have, I don't know, an unlimited supply, it seems, of rubber, you know, micro plastics of some sort. And, you know, we're using, I don't even buy worms anymore. We're just using plastics and and different color combinations, and I'm a, I'm a huge sucker for red. I really like red plastics, and my son is a huge sucker for white. His, his preferred is white, and, you know, we can sit and fish side by side, and at the end of the day, we each catch the same number of fish, even though we have two different colors on. And then if things really get tough, you know, you always have a pack of waxworms that are, a month old that are in your jacket that are half brown that um you know have been completely annihilated and you don't even really use the worm you just kind of stick the worm on and you gush it around and smash it so you just got scent coming off of the plastic (laughs) and that that's 
that's it, you know. Um, crappie minnows, I haven't bought a crappie minnow in a decade. I just, I don't fish that way. I don't like to fish that way. I like to be active. I like very light line. So, you know, I, I do not wear glasses normally, but when you get to be my age, you realize that you need cheaters. So I wear cheaters when I'm looking at a computer screen and, uh, I wear cheaters fishing now all the time so I can tie a line and everything is one pound test. I don't, I don't fish for panfish with anything heavier than one. If you know, you hook into a 13 inch crappie or something, you get very creative when they get to the top of the hole and you, you know, you just know I can't lift the fish out of the water with the line. It's going to break. So you just grab them by the lip and, extract them that way um you know you learn these little things i'm a sucker also for six inch holes so i use a six inch bottom probably 80 percent of the winter i i just i cannot say enough good things about the six inch pistol bit i just i love them um it is my go-to animal and the power head now that i'm running on the six inch pistol bit is an alpha and you know if i'm if i'm going bluegill fishing or crappie fishing it's got a six inch bottom on it with a quick connect if i'm going to go pike fishing i put the eight inch bottom back on but yeah that's that's just how that's how i go that's how i roll and a lot of guys laugh but it's it works really well and it's really fun if you get a 10 inch bluegill in a six inch hole and there's a foot and a half of ice and the one pound test snaps when he's six inches in he can't go backwards. He swims all the way to the top. I get my hook back, and I get the picture of the fish. <laughs> win, win, win. It's a win, win. Yeah. And he gets to swim away and fight another day. So, yeah. That's a it great perspective. Fun. Yeah. It's, you know, it's it's a ton of fun. Um, I just, yeah, I love it. So. Here's my question, Chuck, and, and – um... I'll sometimes use real micro spoons when I'm bluegill fishing. Is that something no. that you keep in a repertoire or, or is there a reason maybe not to? Well, no, I just, I've never done it. I've never really tried it. Um, to me, the five inch tungsten is a heavy enough jig. So if I'm looking for weight to punch through something or to get down to depth, you know, say we are in 26 feet of water and the fish are down at 19 feet and we want to get down quick, you know, then I just upsize to the next size jig head. Um, I have used, though, a few puppet minnows over the years, and they do work really good, too. Those really little guys, they're like, I don't know, gosh, I don't think they're more than maybe a 5 sixteenths of an ounce, maybe a 5 eighths inch puppet minnow, and then just squish a waxworm on the treble hook so you got that goo, and, yeah, they work good, too. But to tell you the truth, I think, I think a lot of baits work. I just don't try a lot. <laughs> you know what works? If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Yeah, it's it's like ah, you, you get set in your ways, and you know you talk about rods too, right? In the evolution of of going through um, various rod scenarios, is is you mature in the ice fishing world, and you know, so if I go back. 30 years ago, everything was spring bobbers. 
you know, we needed the sensitivity. We did not have any rods that had any type of sensitivity to them. You know, they were just peg poles with a fiberglass blank and you couldn't really feel anything with those. So you had to have a spring bobber. So we fished with spring bobbers forever. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the evolution started to happen where companies started to make noodle rods and companies started to make high carbon, actual sensitive panfish rods. Well, now the game has completely changed. You know, now I'm fishing with 36 to 44 inch noodle rods. I have a couple of high carbon rods also if I want to feel them, but I'm a noodle rod sucker because it, it's, you know, I, I love watching that little tip just bounce just like a spring bobber. It takes me back to my, you know, my younger years. And yeah, <laughs> and I got a good story for you guys. This one, you're going to laugh. So I, I did some camera wrangling about 10 years ago in, for Brian Broslow. And we were on a Fraybrill um, video shoot. And the shoot was mainly a still photo shoot for Fraybrill. And the target species were bluegills. And um, it was right around the time when Bro came out with the, the Bro's line of inline reels. And me and him are fishing and the cameraman's there and there was another camera guy there. And, you know, I knew the camera guys, which is why I got to go along. And so, yeah, so I get to meet bro and great guy, you know, we're having a super conversation and all of a sudden he looks at me and he goes, um, why are you still using a peg pole? And I said, because there's zero line twist. And he goes, well, I didn't think anybody knew about that. And I said, bro, we've known about that for longer than you've been alive, young man. <laughs> and then he started laughing. He goes, well, I'm not that much younger than you. And I'm like, whatever. But yep. the, the point is, you know, I still carry a peg pole. And when times get tough and it really gets, it's a really hard bite to catch you know, the bigger bluegills and, you know, especially when you're sight fishing, if you can sight fish these things and you see these big, huge bulls come up and they stare at your bait and your bait has just that slightest little turn to it. And they're like, uh-uh, I ain't falling for that. I fell for that last time and that hurt. I'm not doing it again. And you break out the peg pole and that bait does not move. It just sits there, and they come up, and they sniff it, and they just suck it right in. You go, fooled you. Got him. <laughs> okay. So. okay, so when you're fishing tungstens, I've, I've fished besides a lot of guys who were really good at closing the deal. Just what you explained, right? When that fish comes up, they can be very particular. They're really good at closing the deal. So cadence, to me, I've always watched those people that, that were catching fish when I wasn't, and what were they doing different? Cadence always to me seems like that's a, a an influence on that last, whether it's going to work or not. What what's your kind of what's your input on that one? Yeah, I would agree with you, Kyle. Um, it, it's I, I don't know if I want to call it an art form, but it kind of is an art form. You know, guys that are really proficient at catching panfish, I think subconsciously don't even know that they're doing anything different, but they are, and. Um, 
a lot of times it has to do, I think it has to do with line twist. I think it has to do a lot with line size. I think it has a lot to do with line color. And often I don't think your jig color really matters as much as we want it to matter. But I, I do believe that, um, you know, using a, the lightest line you can humanly possibly use and still be able to, to functionally see it, so you can tie the, the hook on, right? You're much better off. And I don't ever use spinning reels in the winter other than on my walleye rods. And it just, and I change line all the time. You know, my kid will always be like, why do you buy one pound test and 300 yard spools? That doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, yeah, but I burned through 300 yards of it in the winter because once every three weeks, you know, if I fish six times with one pound test, I take it off and I put new line on. Um, like all of it? I do. Yeah. But I only put probably 60 feet on at a crack. Um, but yeah, I do. I replace the whole kit and caboodle you know it, you'll know when you're fishing with me if we're ever out pan fishing somewhere and i hook a five pound pike on with one pound test if i got it hooked in the corner of the mandible and it you know the tooth doesn't break it it'll break because it'll spool me every time <laughs> i just don't have enough line on my rod stuff sure wow handle them yep. you know it's, you just hold it and you go well here we go bing gone dang it <laughs> So that so that cadence we're talking about that's emulating some of the zooplankton. Is that right? Is that the yes. cadence? People will will it's it's a really really short, very almost quick jig stroke. Yeah. Very very small. Yeah. But it's just enough to what is it vibrate or wiggle that tungsten jig enough to make it look like it's alive. Yeah. So the the zooplankton bounce in the water. They call them water fleas. Is their common name and. And they're just they're just bouncing ever so slightly, little um, quarter inch increments. And then as the light gets lower, they rise up and come shallower. And everything then follows them right up. And it doesn't matter if you're in eight feet of water in the weeds or if you're in thirty feet of water. The pattern's the same. This little plankton come up towards the surface because they're starting to graze more and more on the phytoplankton and the minnows are chasing and the predatory fish are chasing the minnows. Um, a lot of times when you talk about cadence, I don't go up and down, I go side to side. And that, that's that been one of my little tricks forever is, and my kid calls it the, you know, the old man shake. But, you know, I used to emulate it but now I actually just sit and shake. So, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a side to side motion. And, you know, you're just, you're, you're letting that tail just wiggle ever so slightly side to side. And then you pop it every once in a while, side to side, pop, side to side, pop. And that's, you know, and then when you get a neutral fish, you just keep raising up and up and up ever so slowly doing the side to side and you get them to bite most of the time. That is good stuff. I love it. Yeah, and it's it's crazy to think too. I know you mentioned the the array of plastics, but I don't care how steady your hands are. 
when you're holding that plastic in the water, there's still enough shimmy and shake in that, yeah. that plastic that it's always tempt, you know, doing something down there with a little bit of movement or flutter. And I think that's really, you know, like you said, if those fish are finicky, you try and hold it as still as you can. And they'll, they'll still be some movement down there to entice them to bite. I got a trick for you on that one, Anthony. And uh, this is something that I haven't seen many people do it, but I've been doing it a long time. I'll bring a two and a half gallon bucket with me and I'll set it in front of me. And if I'm stationary for long enough and I find that the fish that I maybe I'm shaking too bad and the fish are just not happy with what's going on, I use the bucket and I actually lay the rod on the bucket and that takes all movement out of everything. And then just and watch for so it to bite. Yeah, it's like you're dead sticking it, right? And in order to keep yourself from shaking, you use the bucket and you just lay the, you know, lay the ultimate nude on the end of the bucket and then watch the rod tip go crazy and away you go. <laughs> That's one that I haven't tried, but I might have to keep that in the arsenal. It, it is. It's, it's a nice little trick. And my dad showed me that one when he was my age. And I kept thinking, why? Why do you need well now that i'm what his age was back then i'm like i got it i understand so as you you know we talked about early ice and you know different patterns how late in the season are you fishing those weed beds all throughout the season does your pattern change at all when you get into late season do you find anything changing um you know as we obviously we're only in the beginning stages of the season now but as people progress through the season does does any of your your attack on the the panfish bite change at all yeah um when you get into let's say late february early march and you start to actually have runoff you have a little bit of melting action going on um as the water runs down the holes it's bringing with it oxygen so now you're looking for the areas of the lake that are the the best oxygenated areas and those tend to be the remaining weed beds and they tend to be areas where, um, you know, there's, there's still a decent amount of water running in to re-aerate smaller volumes of water. If you think about a deep basin and you think as winter progresses, you lose DO in the basin from the bottom up, right? So the fish are now getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And if they're at the same elevation as that weed bed is, but that weed bed has a lot smaller volume of water over here than that basin does, right? So as that, that surficial melt starts to run in, a lot of those basin fish go right across horizontally and they end up in that weed bed. And that's why, you know, the spring pattern for panfish um, probably since you know the last glacier left and we got panfish has been that pattern um they, they evacuate the basin late in the year they go up into the last remaining green weeds it happens to be coinciding with when water from the surface is running in and you know there's a, a boost in oxygen the fish actually go on feeding binges again and voila now and it's crappies and bluegills. My best crappie fishing every spring is usually in four to seven feet of water around Brainerd. And um, 
I use a technique that's completely different to most people, and I, I'm not going to share it, but it's really fun. And if you ever get a chance, you guys drive over to Brainerd, and I'll take you out and I'll show you it because you're going to have a blast. It's like fishing tarpon. That's all I'm going to tell you. So it's sight fishing, and you're watching fish just come flying out of the weeds and just annihilate your bait, and it, it is so much fun. And then I do upgrade. I do not fish with one pound test that time of year. That is the one time of year I go to three. <laughs> three pound test. Three pound test. Yeah. If, if you think about movement of baits and, you know, your baits move so much better with lighter line, right? There's just more natural. Um, everything just looks, it just looks better. And, you know, if, if you have six pound test and you're trying to run a three millimeter jig, it doesn't function very well. No. And especially when you catch a fish and then you're not gets pulled to the front of the eyelet. Well, now your bait's sitting like this and we want our bait to sit horizontal. And, you know, most people don't realize that they have to move the knot every time they catch a fish and put it back into position. Um, well, I'm giving up all my secrets, man. You're giving them all up and I love it. This is good. Stuff. These have taken me 50 years to figure all this stuff out. Nobody ever told me anything. <laughs> no, it's the little nuances that, you know, it really can make or break the difference. Like you said, when it's a tough bite or conditions aren't right. I mean, if those fish are feeding, a lot of these little tips and tricks will probably don't matter. Those fish are going to come in. They're going to, you know, snap at the bait. But it's when they get finicky or, like you said, those bigger fish that are a little smarter, a little more wary, um, you know, these are really kind of those tips and tricks to help kind of seal the deal. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I, I live by them. I, I think they work really, really well. And um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's just, it's fun. Well, it's been a blast having you on the podcast. I know uh, Kyle and I could probably sit here and pick your brain all night and uh, get some more tips and tricks while you, you know, while you're sharing them. But uh for, uh, for our listeners, obviously, you invited Kyle and I over to the Brainerd Lakes area, so we might have to take you up on that. But, um, you know, if anybody has any questions, is there an easy way for them to get a hold of you if they have more questions after the podcast on, you know, maybe different lakes, how they can find different lakes, or, you know, any of the information that maybe they just had a question on, how could they how could they get a hold of you? Um, yeah, they could, uh, they could send me an email at chuck.g.johnson at gmail.com and yeah if it's talking about fishing i'll i'll respond thanks for joining us tonight uh, we really enjoyed it uh, i know kyle and i have got our little notepads here with little things we're going to try next time and i definitely hope that both kyle and i can uh, can meet up with you sometime over in the brainerd lakes area because it sounds like a blast well thank you anthony and thank you kyle for having me yeah i had a i had a great time you, you guys can tell i like talking I like people and I like to fish. So great combination. Yep. What, what more can we ask for? Awesome. Well, thanks again, um, everybody that was listening. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Shack Talk. If you haven't, go back and listen to some of the earlier episodes this season. Um, we're excited to get a few more great guests on yet this season. So uh, make sure to check back in a couple weeks for the next episode. And until then, get out on the ice, uh, be safe, and uh, have some fun. Hey.